Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Today, we're on the road to hear your stories. Changing things up, going out, meeting people. KSL in your community. Live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. Here are Dave Noriega and Debbie Dujanovic on KSL News Radio. You just heard Dan Bombas call it, well, mostly sunny along the Wasatch Front in the Salt Lake City area. And it is blue skies, just slight scattered clouds out here in Grantsville. And as I pulled into town, I noticed uh, one thing that I was made me smile, Dave, is gas prices are about 25 cents a gallon cheaper. As I was pulling into the into Main, onto Main Street here in Grantsville than they are along the Wasatch Front. I guess that's the, one of the benefits of living about 40 miles west of Salt Lake City. I appreciate you telling me that as I filled up at 3.79 a gallon <laughs> this morning. Thank you. Um, you know, the other thing I noticed as well is uh, lots of big lots, lots of open space and homes sitting on an acre, half an acre lots. 12 acre lots. I mean, it it is so different from where, where we're at. We're kind of packed together um, along the Wasatch Front. So beautiful. Uh, really excited to be here in Grantsville. Uh, once a cowboy, always a cowboy. That's one of the, the mottos here at Grantsville. It's the Grantsville Cowboys. Uh, that's the high school we're at, and we're excited to be here. Oh, we're going to be speaking to the mayor of Grantsville in about 45 minutes about growth and how they're coping with growth. And we're also speaking to a real estate agent, um, wondering what the housing prices look like for um, first-time home buyers here in the Grantsville area or families looking to move away and get out of Salt Lake County, get a little bit further out and maybe to the a country life feel. Yeah, quite honestly, when you start looking about, uh, at the commute times, if you're living out here in Tooele County, it's not that much different than if you're commuting from Utah County or even Weber County. Let's get to our top local story. Dave Indigenovic. Dave Indigenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. We have new insights this morning about the shooting death of a 25-year-old driver in Farmington. It began last Wednesday as a traffic stop when a police officer pulled up behind a blue sedan. Now, uh, you look at that sedan, and it's hard to see for sure from all the, the dash cam video and the body cam video, but, but please say it was an illegitimate license plate. We know this because Farmington PD released that video footage from police cars and also the body-worn cameras from officers who were on the scene at the Farmington Post Office when this shooting occurred and the 25-year-old driver was killed. When I was watching this, uh, it was hard. It was hard to watch it because you knew what was going to happen. Um, but 
you could feel immediately as soon as the officer walks up to the vehicle and the window is only rolled down a few inches, uh, you could immediately see that there was going to be this confrontational exchange. And that's exactly what was happening. Over the next 20 minutes, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a lot of questions about this shooting. Uh, also bringing KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis into the conversation. Um, my first observation as I was watching this video, and I watched it several times from many different body cameras, you notice that it's just one officer who pulls the car over, walks up, kind of knocks on, on the door, the driver's window, as you said, the driver rolls it down just a few inches. The car has extremely dark tinted windows. So at one point, the officer asks the driver, can you please roll down the back window? He just wants to make sure nobody else is in, inside, but the, the, the driver doesn't, doesn't comply with that. Um, and he, the officer also immediately identifies himself. Says he's with Farmington PD. He's in uniform. Explains the reason for the stop. I thought he was very clear about that, that there was no registration on the car. But the driver right away said, I, I don't need a registration. I don't answer questions. Uh, and then the officer at, right away then asks for a couple of more officers for backup. And Debbie, when, it, when I said... It was confrontational. It was confrontational in a strange way. It wasn't like they were yelling at each other. The voices weren't raised. Both sides were actually quite calm in the interactions. The police officer was asking questions. This individual was refusing to answer. And when he did answer, it, it was kind of spewing uh, some some laws and constitutional yeah. rights that he believes. Uh, so let's pick up the body cam video from that initial officer uh, who was responding or who was pulling over that driver. Let's pick up the body camera video where that officer re-explains to the driver the reason for the stop. Let's listen. David Do we have that audio? David I guess we're having... We're having some troubles um, hearing that audio right now. Maybe our producers back in the newsroom can get that fixed. Um, but what, I mean, basically the driver tells the officer uh, if he wants identification, which the officer repeats. And uh, the, the driver clearly did not want to comply with the commands of the officer to, uh, to answer very simple questions. I counted... Uh, according to my count, the driver was asked eight times to provide identification by the officers and was asked to get out of the car by the officers because by now there are a total of five officers on the scene. He was asked six times to get out of the car. But what I don't hear on the body camera footage is the officer asking the driver if he had a gun. I also don't hear the driver tell the officer that he had a gun. Let's get into that conversation straight ahead with KSL legal analyst, Greg Scordis. David Dugenovic. David Dugenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. Well, we now have that traffic stop video from the body cams of the Farmington Police Department uh, that ended in the shooting death of a 25-year-old driver. Um, it lasts about four minutes. It's about a four-minute stop from the time the officer gets out of his car, walks up to the, the, the blue sedan, kind of knocks on the window. The driver rolls the window down just a few inches and sort of talks to the officer 
through that window the whole time until he eventually he's the officers attempt to get him out of the car. Now, according to my count, Dave, I watched all of these videos multiple times. I counted that the driver was asked eight times to provide ID, get out of the car six times. But I don't hear on the body cam footage is the officer asking if the driver has a gun or a weapon in the car. I also don't hear the driver tell the officer he has a gun. Yeah, I didn't hear that either. Part of what really shocked me about the video is how quickly things turned in in an instant. Um, You had several police officers that were kind of surrounding the car and then, Debbie, it, it, it took my breath away how they opened up the door and it changed in a heartbeat. It, it was really quite disturbing to see everyone's talking in kind of calm voices, even though there's a tension. They're talking in calm voices, and the next thing you know, uh, gunshots. Um, it, he was pulled over initially for an illegitimate license plate, and I thought the officer was very clear from the get-go, the moment he walked up to the car, why he was pulling this 25-year-old over, um, that there was an issue, didn't have proper registration on the car. Several times the driver refused to give any ID, uh, citing... Like, he didn't need to, he wasn't required to, the officer has no jurisdiction over him, that if uh, he, 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 you know, he would have to provide him with a contract with his wet ink signature on it. I think that's what I heard. The driver wanted the officer to provide him with a contract that he has jurisdiction. It was a very odd response, in my view, from the driver. Yeah, and and something that, as I'm listening to it as a... As a non-police officer, as a layman, I I have no idea what this driver's talking about. Talking about you're trying to incur debts and take legal action. This is not allowed. My my federal right to to travel. This, to me, it didn't make any sense. So very suspicious. In a moment, we're going to get... KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis into the conversation. He's been on both sides of these uh, officer-involved shootings uh, that result in the death of of, of an individual. Uh, he's been a prosecutor. He's also been a defense attorney. Before we do, I want to listen to about a one-minute-long audio clip from the officer's body camera. Now, we have several different officer's body cameras, um, but this is the, the one-minute clip that I where things take a turn when the one officer gets into the car and it, it then the other it seems like the other officer sort of standing behind him sees the gun now this is a couple of minutes after you know after the stop the driver had finally handed a passport through this four inch crack in the rolled down window and and then it makes it seem like the name on the passport is a fake name and so after that exchange, the officers warn him again to get out of the car, and then another officer reaches in. And I, I want to make it clear that we c- edited out the actual gunfire, uh, just because we know that there are probably children listening. So um, let's go ahead and listen to that one-minute clip of audio from the body cam video, and then we'll get Greg into the conversation. Will you hand that to me so I can read it? You want me to look at it through this tiny crack in your window? 
You're not going to hand it to me? If I hand this to you, accept trusteeship and surety, and you're obligated to... Sure, I'll accept, I'll accept yeah. trusteeship if you just hand me the document so I can identify who you are because you're required by state law. I am not Thank you so much, Mr. Chase Allen. That is not me. That is a piece of plastic paper. So you have a fraudulent passport? No. Wonderful. That's what I'm hearing. Okay, step out of the car for me. No. Sir, step out of the vehicle no. right now. I am not required to. Step if out of this vehicle right now. Then we're going to have an issue where Sir, step out of the car right now. now. Step out of the car. We're going to break the window and pull you out. Step out of the car. Gun, 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 gun. Greg Scordis, KSL legal analyst. We think the gun was in that hip holster. I, I can't 100% say for sure what, what I saw because that video was, was happening so quickly. Dave, what did, what did you see? Well, it, what, another element to this when you're watching the video, you see that the driver is holding his, cam, or his camera, his phone. His it looks like yeah. he's recording the interaction. With, with, with his, his cell phone. So with, with his, his right, right hand, hand okay. he's holding it. He's he's obviously uh, kind of got himself being recorded and the interaction with the police officer. So uh, that was something that stood out to me but as then well. It does seem to me that the driver reaches around. But what we don't know, Greg, is if he was reaching around for a seatbelt latch to unlatch it or if he's reaching around to grab that firearm but i want to make it clear we see later in the body cam video that firearm is on the driver's side floorboard after the shooting right and we also see when he's pulled out of the car that he has what looks to be a holster a brown looked like a leather holster on his right hand side belt that doesn't have a gun in it and so i think it's fair to assume that there that he did have the gun maybe on him we don't know the officers will have to to talk about that and and the body cams that we have don't because his window the passenger side window was up and and really quite tinted we don't re- really get to see too much of what he was doing uh from that angle and of course the officer is blocking most of the view on the other side when he enters the car so I think we're going to have to rely a lot on what the officers saw and then just what's found afterwards, including the location of the gun and the holster. Right out of the gate, uh, there there was noncompliance, right? The driver was not following the orders, uh, arguing with the police officer, says he is not legally, uh, legally, lawfully required to provide identification. Is that accurate? Well, it's accurate that he said that, but it's not an accurate uh, description of the law. I mean, if you're operating a vehicle in America on a public highway and uh, you're you're required to have a driver's license. And because of that, officers are allowed to ask you for your identification, including that driver's license. So there was nothing inappropriate about the officer's questions. And in fact, he should have, by law, given them some information that would have provided some basis for him being allowed to operate a motor vehicle on a public road. Greg Scordis, KSL legal analyst, joining the conversation this morning as we analyze the body camera videos that have been released by the Farmington Police Department um, from police officers who were involved in that officer-involved shooting last week of 25-year-old Chase Allen. Allen was killed. Uh, and now the investigation to determine whether this is justified or not is continuing. Um, the case still has to be turned over to the county attorney in Davis County, Greg. 
But I'm wondering, as I'm watching this video, I notice that the, the police officer doesn't, at least the initial responding officer, doesn't ask Mr. Allen if he has a gun or a weapon in the car. I didn't hear that on the body cam video. I also don't hear Mr. Allen offering that, even as a courtesy to the police officer to say, hey, officer, I am carrying a gun. It is on my right side. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is the officer required to ask that? Is a driver required to give that information? So, so the, answer, the short answer to both is, is probably no. I mean, we've all been stopped for traffic and other violations, and the officers don't ask us if we have a gun. Now, when I, when I drive into the, the courthouse, they'll ask if I have a weapon, or if I'm driving up to the prison to visit a client, they'll ask. But they're not required to. Okay. But I think that most people who teach these concealed carry classes will say, if you're ever stopped by a law enforcement officer and you're carrying, to mention that to the law enforcement officer so that they're not surprised when they see a gun and do this gun, gun, gun thing. I mean, the kid could have and should have said, by the way, I have a gun on my right-hand side. And then if, if the officer wants him to, to keep his hands on the steering wheel or do something for officer safety, they can do that instead of what ended up happening, which was the officers found finding it either by the kid grabbing it or, or whatever. But yeah, they, they, it suddenly is revealed uh, as they're trying to get him out of the car. Uh, Greg, I have one final question. We have probably about 60 seconds or so. A lot of folks are looking at this incident and wondering, uh, with the illegitimate license plate and the initial reaction that the officer got from that driver, which was noncompliance, would there have been an opportunity to de-escalate by the officer letting him go and then perhaps sending a summons to his home? Although I'm not quite sure how the officer would know who was driving that car if that license plate wasn't legitimate. But do you see where I'm going with that question? Yeah, and I think that that's always going to be asked. But I don't know that the officer could have just let him go. For one thing, he's not got a properly licensed or registered vehicle, so you can't really just let him drive on his way. When we don't allow, give drunk drivers, for example, a citation and say, go ahead and keep driving. So people are operating a vehicle. He didn't, we don't know if he had insurance or registration. He certainly didn't have a driver's license. So I don't know that the officer could have just allowed him on his way. Um and, and I don't know how he issues him a citation because the kid doesn't identify himself. So I don't know how the officer can even get that. I, I, don't, I think the officer tried some de-escalation, and it just wasn't working at all. Greg, I'm going to beg you to stick around. Dave has about three questions, and so I want to give him the microphone. Uh, can you do that? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, Greg Scordis, sticking around for the conversation. Dave, what question do you want to ask him in about three minutes? The camera that the driver has in his hand. I, I think that's important. What Is that a camera we, or a cell phone? It's a cell phone. Okay. Yeah. I, it looks I, like an iPhone, right? Yeah, it looks okay. like an iPhone. It looks like he's recording himself. Uh, do we have access to that video? At what point will we see that? And will that give us a unique perspective because that is inside the car? Dave Indigenovic. Dave Indigenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. So here's the deal, man. I'm stopping you because there's no registration on your vehicle, and I'm requesting your identification. Okay? You are detained at this time, and you are not free to leave. Are you going to provide me your identification? I don't answer questions. Okay, so I'm going to take that as a no, that you're not going to provide me your identification. 
Is that is that the route we're going? Or would you like to provide your identification to me and we can have a conversation, we can discuss the laws that you're breaking, and then we can go from there. It's about a four-minute traffic stop from the time the initial officer who pulled 25-year-old Chase Allen over in Farmington got out of his vehicle and walked toward Mr. Allen's car and knocked on the window to the time uh, a barrage of bullets uh, flew from officers' guns. There were then five officers uh, total on the scene after the first officer did call for backup. Um, Mr. Allen died, uh, and now there's an investigation underway to determine if uh, police were legally justified in that shooting. It was incredible to me as I watched this, and we go through it second by second, right, frame by frame, and... By the time the officer opens up the door and reaches in to remove the driver and shots are fired is three seconds. Three seconds is how quickly things turn. You initially hear that one of the officers uh, obviously was seemed surprised to me when he spotted a gun. Um, and we now know that that holster on Mr. Allen's right hip was empty and there was a gun on the body cam video on the floorboard of the driver's side when they pulled his body out of the car. Greg Scordis joins us uh, again, um, KSL legal analyst. And Greg, one of the things that stood out to me as you're watching this video, the driver has his cell phone, and it appears that he is recording the interaction. Uh, So he has the, the camera pointing kind of at himself, and at the officer, so he's recording this interaction. Um, can you walk us through? Are we going to see this video? Do we have access to this? When will this become? Because it's the one piece of video that is inside the car. Right, and and they will get that, and we probably will see that at some point, Dave. But it's a little bit different than the officer's body cams, which are readily available. The officers turn them over. They give the information to their their uh, lieutenant or whoever's doing the investigation, and they can download that. But in this case, the driver's cell phone may have a password. It may be protected. It may be something that the government can't just access just by clicking a button or pushing a button. And And they might also just be doing it very carefully and get a search warrant that will allow them to search the phone for the video. So that will just take a little bit longer. Then they're going to have to uh, figure out how to get into the cell phone, get into the to the password protection, if you will. And, but I assume that we will get that. And it does appear like you guys both described uh, that the driver was videotaping the incident. And that will be an important videotape. And I, I don't know that it'll be much different than the body cams that we've seen. Uh, but it'll certainly be uh, from a different perspective that we don't have. The driver kind of repeatedly recites, it almost seems like legal mumble-jumble to me. I mean, some of this stuff I couldn't quite follow, like the officer had to provide him with a contract that had his wet ink signature. That's what I thought I heard, Greg. Um, he, he, he accused the officer of, of trying to incur debts or that the officer would be responsible for any debts that were recur, uh, incurred during the, the traffic stop. Um, this, this is not normal interaction for most of us when an officer pulls uh, us over. How would you, how would you describe uh, Mr. Allen's response in that traffic stop? 
Well, unfortunately, Debbie, it's sort of out of the playbook for these um, sovereign citizens. Uh, and, and there must be something that they read or that they see that tell them uh, what to say and how to react. Because I've seen that scenario play out so many times uh, with traffic stops and with individuals who proclaim to be sovereign and not, not subject to the to the laws of this state or this country. They're, they're almost like they're a sovereign nation, if you will. And, and that playbook seems to be followed just by the T in this case. And we saw a body, body cam earlier of his own mother being stopped, and her reaction and her statements are almost identical. So it, it's pretty rehearsed. It's part of, of this whole, uh, whole sovereign citizen uh, you know, understanding it doesn't make sense. It is gobbledygook, and, and it's not consistent with the law, but it's something that is apparently being taught for these individuals to say, and, and, pro, and they even believe it. They believe that they are not subject to man's laws or this country's laws. Greg, I, maybe you can walk me through it. When you can see the tensions are high or they're escalating, it, it's certainly suspicious. Are officers allowed to just leave or let this person go uh, to, to maybe help de-escalate the situation? You know, I, I think they could have, and maybe looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but it, it's tough for officers to just walk away from a, a violation that's occurring in their very presence. And, and, and really, it was just give us your name, just give us your identification. They probably would have given him a citation and sent him on his way. I mean, it wouldn't have been very hard at all. Um, and so what they're doing is saying, okay, we're going to take you out of the car. And I don't, even, I don't even think that was an aggressive move by law enforcement. They go into the car, they undo the seatbelt, they take him out, and they, and they shake him down. They pat him down. They make sure they see if he has an identification. That's all they were doing, and they even told him that. It looks like more of a violent, violent encounter, but it really wasn't intended to be if you listen to the officer and you watch his body language. I don't, I don't think this officer had any intention of beating up the kid. He was just getting him out of the car. And, and sometimes they have to do that by, by the use of force. And, and it happens with people who are in jail and don't want to go to court. Sometimes the officers have to literally pick them up and, and take them to court. And, and it just, it, unfortunately, people create that situation for themselves when it would be so easy to just comply and get out of the car and complain about it later to a judge. Greg, Debbie just reminded me as we were watching that video, he said something along the lines that if you try to remove me, uh, we're going to have a problem. Yeah, we're going to have an issue. An issue. Yeah. Um, and that 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 is said by the driver just moments before the um, gunfire, you know, before the officer goes into the car to remove him, Greg. So I wondered if you're the officer on that, listening to that statement and then open the car and then you see the gun and and presumably the officers felt that their lives were in danger. You have the you know, one officer yelling, gun, 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 gun. If that statement by that driver um, plays into this in some way for, for justifying or, or not justifying the shooting. Oh I, oh, I think it gives the officers a heightened reason uh, to be concerned, a heightened reason to perceive that something's going to happen when he says, and to the extent, basically, you're going to be sorry. You know, if you if you try to get me, if you try to do something, you're you know, there's going to be consequences. That that 
gives the officers the impression that there is going to be a problem, that he is going to put up a fight, that he is going to do something. And and so they, it would put them on higher alert, Debbie, and, and, and maybe it did. Maybe that did contribute to what happened here a little bit. But, of course, once you see the gun, all bets are off. Officers have to do whatever they need to do uh, be, to protect themselves and, and each other. Greg Scordis, thank you for uh, taking the extra time to walk us through this story because um, – I, I don't know, Deb. It, it, it's it seems so preventable uh, in on so many levels. It, it's just heartbreaking that it turned out the way it did. And and again, I just go back to I'm watching this video and how quickly it escalates uh, from just calm interactions. Mm-hmm. The driver's voice right. is not yelling. It's not screaming. Yeah, you're talking about a misdemeanor. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're talking about probably a misdemeanor. I mean, we don't we don't ultimately know what would have happened because that traffic stop couldn't continue because of the of the shooting. But, um, yeah. And also, I'm I'm curious to know if the if the officers offer statement that will certainly be part of the investigation, Um, um, how they felt in the moment will be factored into the investigation. Uh, and also maybe that cell phone video as well that you said, you know, you you noted there. If that if he was indeed recording, the driver was recording, that will be part of the investigation. My point is, is this body camera video and the dash cam video that we've now been provided, which is clearly all over the Internet, is only a portion of the investigation. I think we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And with as we learn more from from this, we will provide it to you. David Dugenovic. David Dugenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. Returning to our top local story this morning, which is the release of the police body cam videos in the shooting death, the officer-involved shooting in Farmington. It happened a week ago, a week and a day ago. We do have new insights this morning because Dave and I both looked at this video. Um, 25-year-old driver, Chase Allen shot to death uh, during a police uh, interaction. It began as a traffic stop. You can see from the dash cam video inside the initial officer's car, Dave, and there's just one officer. Um, It becomes clear uh, from that dash cam that there's this illegitimate license plate, and that's what the police department has been saying all along. There was an illegitimate license plate. And, And now that this video has been released, we can see what happened from that point on, after that blue sedan was pulled over in that post office parking lot, the actual incident only lasts about four minutes between the time the officer gets out of his car, knocks on the window, Chase rolls the window down just a matter of inches, and then four minutes later, shots are fired. There were so many things that happened, even in this short Three minute, four walk, minute. Walk us through some of the things that you're seeing as you're as you're looking at the video right now, Dave. As you said, as soon as the the window gets rolled down by just a few inches, the the officer and Chase, the interaction is calm. They are not yelling at each other, but the officer is just calmly saying, "Hey, I need this. I need this information," and then. The the response from the driver was very strange. I didn't know what he's talking about. Things like, I don't need a registration. I don't answer questions. Uh, the officer, I, my observation, immediately identifies himself. 
from uh, the moment he walks up to the car as to who he is. He's in uniform, so there's no question, in my view, anyway, that he is a, a law enforcement officer. He says he's with the Farmington Police Department, and I think this is key. He immediately explains the reason for the stop, that there's not a registration on the car. Uh, But then the interaction goes on for about four minutes where the officer asks repeatedly for identification, uh, that he's lawfully required to identify himself. Um, And he also asks him, he's repeatedly asked by that officer and then other officers who came for backup to get out of the car I believe I counted. Let me double check my numbers on that. I actually sat last night and counted all this. He was asked to get out of the car six times because I wondered, you know, how often the officer, how frequently the officer did ask that question. It was clear they wanted him to get out of the car. But what I also noticed, Dave, is the police officer doesn't ask if there's a gun or some sort of a weapon inside the car. I didn't hear that on the body cam video. I also noticed that the driver does not say that he has a weapon. Um, we now, you know, after the shooting goes down, you can see a holster, an empty holster on the driver's right side, which is by the seatbelt. And then you see the gun on the floorboard in the body cam video of the driver's side on the floorboard there. Joining us right now is Clark Aposhian uh, with the Sporting Council, a gun lobbyist. Uh, Clark, so often we turn to you uh, to, to kind of give us and an insight into the laws uh, here in Utah and, and what compliance looks like. Uh, you're also a concealed carry uh, instructor, so you, you can provide that kind of insight as well. Uh, but can you walk us through a little bit what what you see uh, when you when you watch this video or you uh, you know you learn more about this interaction where nobody quite understands, what that there's a gun even present in the car well let me start off give you a little bit of background under utah law as long as you're not a restricted person and you're 18 years you can actually have a loaded firearm in your vehicle a loaded handgun uh, in your vehicle without any permit required and it's been that way then in addition oh maybe 10 years ago maybe more there was an administrative rule that required just permit holders because they were really the only ones that could, could at that time have a loaded firearm, a loaded handgun in the vehicle, it was required them to notify at their first opportunity affirmatively to law enforcement if they were stopped that they had a firearm in their vehicle. But it was only applicable to permit holders, not to anyone carrying illegally. So it, it, uh, there's no requ- at this time, there's no requirement that – uh, that the that the individual that was shot notify law enforcement, and under there was a, a Utah State Supreme Court ruling that ruled in dictum as part of a, an overall bigger thing that law enforcement on a normal administrative stop, which this started out as for a registration violation, uh, that it's an improper question to ask. Hey, mm-hmm. is there any firearms in the vehicle? But I can see uh, that that a, a police officer would take this from a normal administrative stop to what happened to when the, you know, perhaps a fraudulent ID was given or something like that turned into more of an investigation. And I could see um, why he sh- 
he may have wanted to ask, hey, are there any firearms in the vehicle? But, but, I, did, I, did, but I didn't hear that. But I didn't hear him ask that, at least not on the body camera footage that I watched. And I, and I, I want to and I also didn't hear the driver offer any information about a gun. And when I watched the video, it's it's certainly it's. In my view, it wasn't. I can tell everything that was going on in the on the driver's right hip. And he was asked to get out of the car. Some may say, well, maybe he was reaching over to undo his seatbelt. But he was asked repeatedly before that to get out of the car. Uh, and then others would say, you know, maybe from the cop's point of view, he thought that he was thrusting himself back and he was reaching for his gun that was in the holster to maybe uh, use it against the cops. Uh, we also know. I also know from watching the video at the toward the end of the video or the end of the scene where they're assisting the driver uh, out of the car and then rendering aid to him, I hear an officer ask, did he fire any bullets? And I, I felt that they were referring to the driver. And that is like, I heard the response. Like, I don't know. I, they don't know for sure at that point. Of course, they're going to run tests on that, Clark. Um, but so there's a lot, you know, we can learn from this. I mean, maybe it just the video ends up causing more confusion. But what would you instruct as a concealed carry permit instructor and a, a lobbyist on the Hill and somebody who's run the sports shooting council and been a member of it for years? What do you instruct gun owners to do when they're in a car with a gun and a cop is asking them to get out? Well, that, well, that's real simple. It's, it's we instruct common sense, which is, hey, if you get pulled over uh, for a normal administrative stop, you're going to end up staying in the car uh, there's not going to be any searching or anything like that. You don't need to, and it's a, you know it's a traffic violation. You don't need to to notify law enforcement. It just adds an extra element of anxiety to both people, I think. So as long as you're not getting out of the vehicle, or the firearm will not be accidentally or inadvertently displayed or discovered uh, before you know you, you you tell the cop, hey, I've got a gun. You don't need to say anything. But if you're going to get out of the car, yeah, you need to. Uh, effectively communicate to the cop, hey, I've got a permit and I have a gun and it's in the glove box or it's on the seat or it's on my hip or something like that. So that law enforcement, so that that officer for officer safety doesn't find out in a, in a flash, in a moment by seeing it, uh, that you have a firearm. Clark, a potion. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, a rough story. It was a rough video to watch, Deb, mm-hmm. uh, to watch this unfold, how quickly things turned from just a, a simple traffic. It's a special edition of Dave and DeGenovic, live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. We are at Grantsville High School right now. Amanda was broadcasting here live all morning long. We've got lots of coverage about not only Grantsville, but the Tooele Valley, the growth they're seeing here. And in a moment, we're going to speak live with the, the Grantsville mayor. I love this area. I'm going to be honest. I, I've i played Grantsville softball and been out in Tooele a lot you of have? times. Yeah. Wow. They, so we, we spend yeah, some time so cool. out here. It never ceases to amaze me how, how many mountains there are surrounding this area. It's just kind of gorgeous. Uh, it's a little bit removed, though. It's a little bit removed, no question. Not too bad. I noticed the gas prices were about 25 cents a gallon cheaper out here. How in the world is it 25 cents cheaper here? <laughs> Mayor, <laughs> How? why are your gas prices so much cheaper? It's only 40 <laughs> miles west of Salt Lake. Grantsville Mayor Neil Critchlow on the line live with us right now. Um, thank you so much uh, for, for hosting us in your city today, Mayor. 
Well, thanks for being here. We appreciate you coming out. I'm looking at, at the high school. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. The skies are, are beautiful this morning. The drive out here was gorgeous. Uh, 2020 population numbers put Grantsville at about 11,500 residents. Have you seen growth since 2020? Oh, considerable. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Um, in fact, even that's probably very conservative as far as the number of people mm. living out here. It's It's gone up a lot. We probably have, you know, 15,500, 16,000 wow. people already. So. so is this something that Grantsville celebrates, or does this uh, start creeping in on some of the, the small-town feel? Uh, creeps in on the small-town feel. I, You know, I grew up here. I, I can remember when we had, you know, 3,000, 3,500 people, and you know, Grantsville was really a, a great place to be. But, you know, the people coming in, they just bring so many good things with them. And I, I, we're kind of past the small town feeling, that 3,500 feeling. I just I want people to know that they're, this is hometown for them, you know. So. Mayor uh, Neil Critchlow on the line live with us. He's the mayor of Grantsville, and this city has boomed. Uh, I started coming out here to cover news stories uh, mayor in the early 90s and I come out here now and I notice there's all kinds of development how how is the retail or the businesses do you do you have any big businesses moving in we we have up there on the the east side of town we have the Lakeview Business Park which is a warehouse district that's coming in it's it's you know similar to what a satellite inland port would be there's some businesses coming in there we have the Walmart Distribution Center. We've set up uh, that came in in 2001 or 2002, but we we are getting more and more uh, like light industrial and those type of things that are coming out and seeing what it's like to be in Grantsville and and I like them. You know, it's just a lot of houses, sure. You what? know, the old timers don't like it. <laughs> I bet they don't. <laughs> Uh, can you give us an idea? What is the the most pressing challenge for Grantsville outside of growth? Is it water? Is it safety, crime? What is your, your biggest challenge outside of growth? You know, I, I really have a lot of concern over the the water. You know, the first week I was the mayor, I met with the people from the Department of Water Resources. And, and you know, cause my concern was... Are we going to run out of water someday? You know, because that's you know, the estimates. What's already been and approved, or the zoning changes that have happened, we could be seventy-five thousand people fairly quickly if this suddenly developed. And 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 I just worry about the amount of water we can do because we get our water from an aquifer. It's not like we have a river we can tap into. So. And those things are a struggle for me and sewer and the streets and those types of things. What's the town's feeling about multi-family you know, housing, apartments, townhomes, and condos? I noticed as I was driving in a lot of wide open spaces and big lots. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and we like those. And and they there is a lot of, of townhomes that are on the... Uh, list to be developed right now 
the the bigger lots, the half acre lots, they, those things came in and they developed them. And, and but these townhomes, the zonings that were changed before I took over as the mayor, those are going to bring in more townhomes and more uh, smaller lots. And uh, the affordable housing thing that the legislature wants us to work on, uh, you know, we're we're having the developers give us a certain percentage to affordable housing so we can get people that can oh. actually live here have them as starter homes. No Critchlow, thank you for joining us as the mayor here in Grantsville. We appreciate you welcoming us here, and uh, we're excited to be here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, Mayor, you, you may want to stick around for our next conversation with the real estate agent. We'll ask him about all those those questions about you know what what's going on out here in terms of the housing market and how hot this area is for housing sales and, and what it looks like even for, for new or first-time home buyers. Well, especially in these small communities, right? Uh, they can grow exponentially when you have kids and the kids want to live where they grew up in. And then you can see that, that growth uh, in just a matter of a generation explode. Lots more straight ahead as we broadcast live from Grantsville High School, including a conversation in our 11 o'clock hour with the superintendent of the Tooele County School District. It's a special edition of Dave and Dejanovic, live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. Would you live in Grantsville, Dave? Heck yeah. Grantsville is about 40 miles west of Salt Lake City. Did I get that about right? I, I didn't drive in from Salt Lake City today, but it feels like it's about 40 minutes. Yeah. 45 minutes. I, I would even say a little less. It, it took me about an, an mm-hmm. about an hour from Kaysville. A little, maybe 50 minutes from Kaysville. Does the one way in bother you? Okay. Not now. Because it was, it was pretty smooth sailing. Um, but if you have much more growth, that will be a nightmare. Well, the mayor, uh, we just hung up the phone with the mayor of Grantsville, and he said they are expecting, according to his projections or the projections he's looking at, they could get to 75,000 people out here. And I think the analysis he used on that was quickly. <laughs> I, I wrote that down. Uh, mayor Crit- Critchlow said 75,000 people quickly. Uh, they, I asked him, you know, they the census has them at 11,500 people in 2020. He's like, oh, that's low. And <laughs> it was low then. And it, it we have maybe 15,000 or more people now. His main concern is water because they rely on an aquifer. So there's some challenges to growth. I also heard him mention that they have townhomes uh, on the horizon uh, coming to Grantsville. As so well. much of this is perspective, right? I come from a, a fairly small town, Kaysville. Uh, we've got 35,000 mm. people. We don't, I mean, I look at the wide open spaces here. You don't and have he's, that. And he's talking about feeling a little bit uh, like they've lost the small town feel. It's all perspective because I look at this, I think this is wide open. This is wide open. Chris Sloan, good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you on. Chris is a broker and owner of Group One Real Estate. Uh <laughs> There's a lot of space out here in Grantsville, but I mean, I, I, I would imagine the people who settled this area don't want to see growth come this way. Well, there's probably not as much black and white as that statement might indicate. I think Good. 
uh, like anybody, we want the really cool things that, that growth will bring to us. Um, uh, we don't necessarily want the, the influx of the people that, that are required to support those things. So um, it all just depends on whose ox is being gored, I guess. <laughs> It's so true, right? Uh, it is. It's a catch twenty two. You get the good, and uh, sometimes you get some of the bad that that comes along with it. Um, if if I look at some of these areas, and and I would think if I'm a developer, this place gorgeous, beautiful, wide open spaces. Uh, what does the first time home buyer market look like out here? Well, the first-time home buyer market is, is a tough one just about anywhere in the state. But uh, one of the joys of, of Twilla County in general, and, and perhaps Grantsville in particular, is that you know our, our sales prices are still significantly less than anywhere along the Wasatch Front. Um, so if, if you're looking at uh, from a home, first-time home buyer, the availability has been one of the biggest issues. And as Mayor Critchlow indicated, uh, some townhome product is uh, actually is already here in Grantsville. Uh, with more on the way, uh, but you can still. I mean, our average sales price within the county uh, is you know four hundred and forty thousand dollars. So uh, that's your you know year to date, but uh, that puts us you know anywhere from seventy to one hundred and ten thousand dollars less than anywhere along the Wasatch Front. So do you see a lot of young families moving out this way from the from the Wasatch Front? A, a lot of them, if they if they cho- if they have a chance to choose, will look at the two locations they'll realize that hey i can get to downtown salt lake city in 35 minutes from grantsville uh it might take me 40 minutes from draper uh and then you factor in that uh that difference in the cost of housing uh we start to look pretty good the state is trying to encourage uh, developers to provide more options for the first-time homebuyers. And, in fact, they, they just passed a bill that would give $20,000, essentially an interest-free loan, uh, to first-time homebuyers to try to, whether it's uh, help out with the down payment, buy down the interest rate, closing costs, some of those things. But it does have to be under that $450,000 price range. Do developers look at this and say, you know what, that that's a market that, Grantsville could sustain under four hundred and fifty thousand dollars new builds. Absolutely, I think you know builders want to build and they want to build product that has demand. And and there's such an affordability and, and housing uh, availability gap in the state right now. And those first time home buyers have been priced out based on the the boom that we've had over the last eighteen months to two years. So the options that that program can potentially bring to us. And, and I've heard the people complain, well, why isn't it available for, for uh, uh, existing homes as well? Uh, the reality is the legislature was looking at this specifically to deal with two things. One, of course, is the availability. The second part is, you know, we've got a huge market of, of, of demand. We don't have a ton of supply. So for a first-time home buyer that doesn't have down payment necessarily, you know, FHA requires 3.5% down. Well, on a $450,000 house, that's a chunk of change that most of our young people just can't come up with. So the opportunity to have uh, that and not be limited to it has to be down payment or it has to be this or it has to be that, but, but the opportunity to buy that interest rate down a point or two, for example, that's a game changer for, for our young families. I've, I've got you know, six kids of my own that, that we've got to figure out a place that they can live, and I want to keep them here. And so Grantsville, uh, again, specifically Grantsville, Twila County in general, fantastic place to keep your family close 
program like this is really going to help us do that. Chris Sloan is a broker and owner of Group One Real Estate. We're talking to him because we're live today in Grantsville, broadcasting all morning long from Grantsville High School. And this city has grown so much in the 30 years that that I've been coming out this way from time to time, Chris. And when we talked to the president of the Senate, Stuart Adams, who sponsored that legislation to get that $20,000 to first-time home buyers, um, you know, he did talk about a lot more, you know, new housing for first-time home buyers. Uh, maybe the developers would provide more supply. He also mentioned that, you know, I mentioned this to him. It was like you not getting these first-time home buyers into these fixer-uppers uh, for one price, and then they got to put a hundred thousand dollars into it uh, by the time they move into it. So it's just kind of a wash. I'm wondering though, if this program does go live this summer, like it's anticipated to. Will Grantsville have any new supply to sell to first-time home buyers? I think so. I think they're, uh, you know, as the mayor talked about earlier, they've been a little bit hesitant on the growth because it's been overwhelming in a lot of ways. Um, and, and as he also mentioned, you know, some of the limiting factors, whether it be water or, or transportation infrastructure. Um, if you if you pull up uh, listings for new construction in, uh, in Tooele County and in Grantsville right now, under that ceiling, there is availability. And again, builders are ready to go. Uh, Developers are working on projects uh, that will fit that product exactly. Uh, They want to build. They want to sell. It does no good for a developer to come out and say, you know, I'm going to build million-dollar homes in Grantsville and then sit around and listen to the crickets. Um, They're not going to do that. On the other hand, if they know that they can provide a product and that uh, the government has provided a program that is going to help fill that pipeline, uh, they're going to be very excited about it. Chris Sloan, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. Owner of Group One Real Estate. Thanks, Chris. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Uh, straight ahead, we're going to get Ted Rossman from Bankrate on the line. Uh, you know, there's been talk this week about continuing to raise um, interest rates, which means a price of a mortgage interest rate will probably go up and up over the next uh, course of the next year or so. So we're going to bring... It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ted on the line to talk about what this means for home buyers and for consumers. And I want to know the answer to this question. If interest rates keep going up and up, even on our credit cards, why do keep people keep spending and spending? It's a special edition of Dave and Dejanovic, live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. I'm convinced that our spending habits are confusing the Fed. They keep raising interest rates, and we keep spending and buying, and they're like, wait a minute, we're raising interest rates, so you spend less and we slow the economy down. Uh, we can anticipate we can anticipate more rate increases because we're spending, 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 Dave. They are sending us a message, and we refuse to listen. I, I wonder if the Fed feels like a parent. Like, they keep saying things, but we, the children, are just tuning them out. How, have you slowed your spending habits? Yes. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've. It's been incredible as we've seen all that disposable income that we had just evaporate over the last couple because of years. Of inflation. No question. Um, You've been more conscientious about what you're buying and why you're buying it. Vacations, oh. home improvements, ah. uh, replacing furniture, you know, whatever it might be. All of that has been radically curtailed. So well, I don't know what the rest of y'all are doing. <laughs> Ted Rossman, a senior industry analyst at Bankrate. Clearly, Dave and his family is not the problem. Yeah, you're doing your part to bring down inflation. I like it. <laughs> the, the, the Fed would would thank him, but what what is what is going on? What are you seeing from the thirty thousand foot up level? Yeah, I think what you're talking about actually does hit on some important contradictions in the economy because you know in some respects we have really good numbers like the lowest unemployment rate in fifty four years. But that's counterbalanced by high inflation, obviously, high interest rates. Credit cards are at their highest point on record, a little over 20 percent. And none of this really feels great. I mean, I think a lot of people have had downbeat consumer confidence numbers for really a few years now um, for all of these reasons. And, you know, it is a tough job for the Fed. I think it speaks to that K-shaped economy where some people are doing much better than others. But I still think that Inflation is still too high, and it's definitely broadened out, and I feel like it's affecting all of us. And even if our wages are up, it just doesn't feel right because inflation's gobbling up so much of that. Ted, I do want to talk, uh, dive into that a little bit more about the wages because uh, so often we hear about a livable wage. And just a couple of years ago, it was like a $15 you know, livable wage. Well, with inflation, you look at $15 and $15 is the new $10 or whatever it might be. It, can you speak to that a little bit about how wages have gone up, but it just doesn't seem like it feels like we're going backwards still? Yeah, because, yeah, that's right. If your wages are up 4 or 5% and inflation is 6 or 7 you know, you're still falling behind. There can be a vicious cycle to this, too, that as workers, we love to get paid more, but as consumers, we don't want to pay more. And then if businesses are paying their workers more, and also if raw materials cost more, then just everything goes up and it, it kind of feeds off itself. I think it's important, too, that a lot of the data that we see is not adjusted for inflation, like the monthly retail sales figures, for example. So it looks like people are spending really aggressively, but a good bit of that is just because everything costs more. You know, grocery prices are up. 11%. Um, travel prices are way up. Now, that's an interesting one because that's largely a discretionary expense. So we do still have some pent-up demand from the pandemic and people are traveling and they're eating out. So, you know, some of it's discretionary, but there are also a lot of people using their credit cards extensively just because they need to and they're putting essentials on there. And with interest rates so high, that's a tough one. I was going to ask you, Ted, why do people keep spending? Do you think that is largely because of inflation or are we emotionally spending? It's some of both. I mean, I think a lot of it is inflation, especially essentials and especially lower income households are bearing the brunt of it because they have less income to begin with, but also their budget is mostly necessities. So there's only so much you can cut. Um, that said, you know, there are still impressive statistics for 
growth at restaurants and and travel and you know I do think there is this kind of you only live once thing that has come out of the pandemic among other things and I mean we definitely see it among young adults but you know we also see young adults struggling with student loans and you know housing is so expensive and you know th- there are a lot of essentials that people are spending on as well so I, I think it's kind of a mix but i think in recent months we've started to see people pulling back on bigger ticket items like cars and electronics and renovations and i, I think it speaks to that cumulative toll of month after month of higher prices and higher interest rates Ted Rossman, thank you for joining us. Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate. Did ever want to go over some spending habits? I looked at this article. It was posted on Amerabit. I think that's the name of the website. And they broke down like a line item, uh, line by line, how much we spend on different things around our house and for our lives. You want to hear it? Yes. Uh, this one shocked me. The average American spends $63,500 a year on everything to basically keep us alive and put a roof over our heads. How much? 63500 a year. Okay. okay. So let me break it That's down even more. That's the bare more. minimum. Yeah, did, I, I, I didn't think it was that high. That, yeah, that, that surprised me. Oh, it <laughs> sounds like a chunk of change to me. Okay. Okay. Um, let's talk about housing. We spend between 18 and $36,000 a year on okay. housing that make right so you know house payments 2 to 3,000 yeah. dollars yep yeah healthcare uh, whether you live alone or you live with your family you're spending about $5,000 a year on healthcare expenses that would probably make sense for the year you had last year yeah right yeah don't break things. I thought this was interesting. If you're eating out, you're spending about $2,400 a year away from home. But single people spend more eating out. They spend about $3,500 a year eating out than, than people who are with a significant other. I thought that was curious. Do you remember? I I brought this to the team's attention, and it was shocking to me. I it was one of the government websites that tracks spending, and and this was the big shocker to me. We spend more money eating out than we do eating at home. It's about fifty five percent of our total food budget, quote unquote food budget, is eating out, and that was shocking to me because we're choosing to go to McDonald's, we're choosing to go out and and have a, a nice meal versus going home go to the grocery store and making our food at home. Here's what I, I was curious. Like how much do we spend on like things like hairspray and Q-tips? <laughs> Very little for yeah. me. I mean, they're like, or, or like non-essential items, yeah. right? Things that we don't really necessarily need. It's about, it's about, uh, hairspray is not essential. Okay. Yeah. okay. Non-essential <laughs> items. You're right. I don't, I don't use hairspray anymore. I gave that up. Um, save the ozone. We spend about $1,500 a month on non-essential items. So if you're looking to cut your budget, if you're keeping track of, of and you should be, right? I mean, you should be, look at that. Cause that was, I thought there probably could be a ton of wiggle room in something labeled non-essential. Well, if you, if you really look at what is essential, what is non-essential, uh, you can really start breaking it down. Like is your cell phone non-essential? Is your Wi-Fi? Is your Netflix account? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that you could reasonably say, oh, that's that's not essential. But I'm not sure Wi-Fi 
is not essential anymore. I'm not sure a smartphone is not essential. Well, you there's definitely things here that you 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 can't do without. You can't do yeah. without a roof over your head. Um, you can't always do without a car. Although maybe you can take light rail mm. and spend less on a car. A lot of places right, around the world would look at what we deem as essential and would laugh in our yeah. faces. So the car, the number you spend on a car would be between 3000 and 10000 a year, according to the data. Is there, there a place there that you could cut back? Like I've thought about um, taking more light rail yeah. into work at least a couple of times a week and just extending my, my days at, in the newsroom and then taking light rail home. And that could save me... a Easily a couple hundred dollars a month in gas because it's about a, a, a 30 minute or so commute one way. We're not nearly as creative as we should be. And I think that is in part why we're still spending so much money. Lots of food for thought <laughs> and ways to save or things to think about. Uh, thanks so much uh, to Ted Rossman for weighing in as well. Uh, in the 11 o'clock hour, looking forward to our conversation with the uh, superintendent of the Tooele County School District, Dr. Mark Ernst. Dave, you had some questions about uh, teacher retention and how they're keeping teachers here in the Tooele School District happy so they stick around. Yeah, nationally we are seeing uh, teachers, uh, part-time substitutes just leave the industry altogether I'm curious what it looks like in, in one of our smaller school districts. So much more straight ahead as the Dave and Dijanovic Show broadcasts live from... It's a special edition of Dave and Dijanovic. Live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. We are in the cafeteria of Grantsville High School. And I'm so excited to speak first to the English teacher, Whitney Wallace. And Dave, as we were coming back from commercial break, you were really excited to learn about the reading list in the English, <laughs> in their English class. Yeah. I, w- I wish I'd been that excited about English books, uh, you know, ninth grade as I am now. I get super <laughs> excited about it. Now it makes all the sense in the world. But in, as a ninth grader, sometimes I'm like, oh, do I have to really read the Odyssey it's so boring. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Now it's awesome. You're also the uh, Sterling Scholar Advisor, so thanks for taking time away from class today and all your other responsibilities. So what is what is a Sterling Scholar? So Sterling Scholars are selected from a pool of applicants in 16 categories from seniors, and they kind of pick which they're going to apply for based on their strengths. We start talking to students about Sterling Scholar as freshmen Hmm. so that we can kind of help them prepare their course load to take more challenging courses and get their community service hours in, get involved in our school, get involved in athletics, activities, and just kind of make themselves the best well-rounded student they can be so that they are a great candidate for Sterling Scholar. Outside of the bragging rights, and I don't want to minimize the bragging (laughs) rights because I love some bragging rights. Uh, but how do you pitch that and say, hey, listen, uh, you're going to have to do a little extra work. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's hard to pitch to ninth graders who right. really can't see the end of high school and the end of the road there. It's forever away. Yeah, it yeah. seems so long. But we kind of try to get across to them that being Sterling Scholar 1 is going to look fantastic on your resume and applications for schools and applications for pretty much anything you go because it says that you can work hard for an extended period of time. But also Sterling Scholars, whether they're school level, so picked from our school, 
whether they are runners-up at region or winners at region, there's some major scholarship money involved thanks to the Larry H. Miller Foundation. And so all the Utah colleges and universities offer various rates of scholarship based on how far students get. But there's a lot of money to be had for these kids who work hard. What, as an English teacher, what is one thing you wish, what's at the top of your list you wish parents would do more of? Give us some, give us some parenting advice to make our kids appreciate English more. Mrs. Wallace. Mrs. Wallace. <laughs> so being able to take school seriously from an early point and understanding that teachers are there to help the students as much as they can, but the students have to put forth enough work and enough effort for us to be able to help them. So my advice to parents would be to be aware of what is going on in your student's school, but also let them fail. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. (laughs) That's an anarchist concept. Let them fail. What What do you mean by that? Let them fail. Let them mess up. Let them make mistakes. Let them learn from those mistakes. Because if parents are taking away the opportunity to learn from those, students miss out on a lot. And they don't see how serious things can be. But they also, school is a safe place to fail. We're here to help them. We're here to help them grow. And so I want to see my students make mistakes, get messy, mess up. And then how can we improve from there? And so kind of that growth mindset really helps the kids a lot. I I don't, in all the years I've reported on education in Utah, I don't think I've ever heard anybody in the school system say, it's okay to let your child fail. I think most parents feel like we need to to be a safety net. But with your permission, I think we should be letting more kids fail, get back up and go for it again. Yeah. And it really teaches them to be resilient and have that grit. And if you have that, you can do anything. That's so true. It's great advice. Whitney Wallace, the English teacher and Sterling Scholar Advisor here at Grantsville High School. That was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. All right. Let's turn our attention to the athletic director, Scott Moritzen. Uh, I'm excited to talk about uh, Athletics here in the in this high school because it plays an important role. I I go I'm, I come from Davis High School, the Davis School District. Uh, we've crossed crossed paths with Grantsville a few times, especially in softball. Uh, you got a great program out here, but uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, some of the cool things you have going on here. We have a, a lot of great things going on at Grantsville High School. My mom was a Davis Dart, so right. I, I love I love the Davis Darts. Um, but here at Grantsville, we we uh, promote good sportsmanship through our programs. We've we've hired some amazing coaches, and and to me, that's the key to to help um, encourage our our students to perform the, at the best of their ability to put forth that that good effort. And and so that's where I give a, a ton of the credit is is to our coaches. So there's a you told us there was a parade in town last night. You were celebrating a team here at Grantsville that just took state. Yes, give our us u- the details. Our unified basketball team went into to Weber State yesterday. They had to win three games yesterday. The and girls' team. So it, it is the girls. And, add, is it is it is it coed? It is ah. unified basketball is coed. Nice. Um, we have ten kids on the team. It's made up of, of some special ed uh, students and then some regular ed students. 
Um, we had three regular ed students on the on the team. They're called the partners, and then the others are the athletes. And you can only have you can have up to two partners on the court at the time. The other three or four have to be uh, the athletes. And and they, it was so fun to to see their excitement on the court. And and after they won, I had some students tell me that, well, our 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 boys and girls basketball teams didn't quite uh, accomplish what we wanted to at, at state the weekend before. So we're hoping that we can bring home a, a state championship. Aww. And and they did. And so we did. We brought we had the the police escort them in Aww. yesterday through town. Our community is awesome. Showed up and and gave them the the love and support they deserve. Well, so, how did the unified sports program begin? Uh, that's a great question. Here at Grantsville, um, uh, several years ago, we had a, a, an athletic director, Pat Siervo, who who started it here at, at Grantsville. Um, it, it began with unified soccer is is really the sport that it, it it started with, and then last year was the first year that they extended it to unified basketball and unified track and field. I actually went into the state swim, and they had a unified swim event oh, wow. there. And, and it, it's just so fun. It, the, the pressure is not the same with unified sports, it, and, and the, whole, the whole crowd, the whole audience just can cheer everybody on, and it, 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 it's really special. How do schools get involved? If they don't have a unified sports program, how do they participate? They need to reach out to Special Olympics. It's, okay. It is sponsored through Special Olympics, and, and the UHSA is, is involved with that as well. It sounds like a remarkable program. Um, you have a wonder. You have a. Do you have a lot of kids participating in sports in Grantsville? We do. We have sports is a big, big part of our community for sure. Yeah. Well, to be uh, so inclusive and create this unified sports uh, program, that's outstanding. Scott Mortson, thank you for joining us. He's the athletic director here at Grantsville High School, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. it. Tell the unified uh, team congratulations. That must have. Been. What was the final score? Do you remember? I don't know. That's that on I do. the spot. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I'm, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast. You're asking for a score. But they, but they won three in a row. Yes. Wow. I bet you they slept well last night. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. We expect. We we appreciate you. We expect great things of uh, the, the kids next year again. So when we come back, we'll hear more more about them next year when we're out here. Thanks so much. Straight ahead, President Biden releasing his 2024 budget proposal. Uh, we understand that he's going to be speaking at 1230. Caitlin, is that 1230 our time he's speaking today? Okay, so that will be during uh, Marie's new newscast. Um, so she'll be probably taking you there live. But in the meantime, uh, Boyd Matheson from Inside Sources joining us to dig into the budget in just a few minutes. We're still live from Grantsville, Grantsville High School where the unified basketball team just captured the state title. Dave and Dujanovic have inside sources. The president will be speaking in about an hour and 20 minutes from now. I mean, that's the scheduled time. We don't know what Biden's standard time is this morning. Uh, <laughs> it's always hi, funny because he's never on time. Hi, Boyd. Um, Boyd Matheson in studio while Dave and I are broadcasting live from Grantsville High. Uh, and we got the notification from the newsroom while we're out here in the field, Boyd, that the budget has been released. And I'm looking at some of the, the highlights or lowlights, depending on how you want to look at it. 
Uh, I'm looking at things like it calls for uh, new taxes on the wealthy, uh, defense spending. Uh, it's a $26 billion increase in Pentagon spending to $842 billion, and also a nearly $25 billion uh, to strengthen border security which is an $800 million increase over over 2023. Uh, what are you seeing in the fine print that catches your eye? Well, I think the important thing to, to look at in this particular budget is uh, this is really a political statement more than it is a budgetary statement. Uh, and let me tell you why that's the case. Uh, so one, the, the president actually doesn't want Congress to vote on this budget uh, because he would he would lose probably to the tune of what Barack Obama did in 2011 uh, when President Obama put forward a budget and a democratically controlled Senate voted it down 99 to one. Uh, and so so what the president is is doing here, there, there are some these are really like uh, chips in a game there. He's putting them all on the board. Uh, which will cause and force the Republicans to respond either with their own plan or a negotiation. So this is this is more like first move uh, from the president. Uh, the fact that he's unveiled this this morning and then he's really unveiling it officially uh, at a speech in Pennsylvania, uh, which it's is a safe very spot, very it's a safe well, spot. and very important for him in terms yeah. of uh, announcing a reelection, which will which will be coming soon. And so uh, a lot of this is a little bit more high level politics and positioning than it is actual dollars and cents, because we actually don't even have a, a number from the Congressional Budget Office in terms of what would all of this actually do. And that's when you you know you're getting serious when you get a score from the Congressional Budget Office because they make you show ah. your math. Yeah. Nobody likes to actually do the math in Washington. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a bold statement, I know. But what are what are what's at the top of the wish list uh, from President Biden? Because I think that you're right. This is a time to signal to say what you prioritize. What do you think is the top of that wish list? Well, I, I think the top priority for the president. Again, this is this is more politics than policy today. Uh, the top of his wish list is having the the conversation starter of tax the, the wealthy, that the, the answer to whatever the question is, is, is tax the wealthy. Uh, and, and so that's going to be part of what this particular plan is. If you look in, if you do look at the fine print in terms of what it says in terms of raising taxes on the wealthy, there's some pretty interesting things in there uh, in terms of raising taxes. It would raise about an additional $3 trillion over a 10-year window, which is how you always look at these things. Uh, but there's some pretty peculiar things in there as well. One that we've talked about on this show before, which is the unrealized capital gains tax. So if you if you bought a, a stock at $100 and it went up to $200, but you still held on to it, uh, they want to be able to tax that unrealized capital gains. Now, they only want to do it on the super wealthy, uh, but we know whatever happens to the super wealthy ultimately happens to the rest of us. Well, I'm just hoping that... I- a tax uh, a stock would double if I owned it. It never does. It goes the other direction. Do I get money back from President Biden? Exactly. When that happens? Funny, funny thing, Debbie. <laughs> That's where you get the donut hole, <laughs> where you don't you don't get it back. But Dave can take I, a bite out of it. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm looking. I, I'm looking at. I'm just. I just pulled up a couple of articles out here while we're you know broadcasting remotely in Grantsville, Boyd, and I'm seeing that he's also pushing for 12 weeks of paid leave in the budget. Now, I would have I would have loved that if I would have uh, been able to use that in the 90s when I was having my firstborn and I had to take my own time and then take time off without leave or without pay uh, to give birth. But I'm looking at this and it says 
Uh, he's asking Congress to approve up to 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave as part of his annual budget. He also wants lawmakers uh, to require businesses to give their employees seven days off each year to recuperate from routine illnesses. Uh, how does that float your boat? Uh, so, again, these are all kinds of things in the uh, uh, the, the wish candy list, uh, so to yeah. speak. Uh, he's he's really kind of laying all of these markers out there. He's also included expanding the child tax credit. Again, very po- popular. So if you go down these, there's a lot of very popular, populist-type uh, messages in there. Most of them are, are non-starters. You have to remember, we're in divided government. Uh, and so part of this has to originate with the House. Uh, and with a Republican-controlled House, a lot of those things are just not going to see the light of day. Uh, I do think it was interesting uh, that the president said, yes, we do need to uh, bolster defense spending. So, tradition- so this is where the president's going to have some problems within his own party uh, in terms of uh, those who, thinks we, who think we should be cutting uh, the military and defense budget. Uh, the president's saying, no, we actually need to increase it. So hmm. he, he's got some uh, – again, these are markers he's putting out there and not just to do battle with the Republicans. The president is also positioning very wisely, very importantly, within his own party because you have to remember in 2024, not only is will he be up for re-election, you'll have 23 Democratic seats up in the Senate. And if they want to maintain control, you have to get people like John Tester from Montana. You have to get Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia, uh, Senator uh, Sinema from uh, Arizona and so on. And so the president is doing a lot of positioning with these statements today and these pieces of his budget. Uh, none of them we really expect to see happen they're all just part of a campaign of communication that the White House is trying to get out there that will be the beginning of conversations and negotiations for an actual budget. Negotiating through thousand-page documents just seems <laughs> wildly ineffective. Is there anything that perhaps Republicans could look at and say, you know what, I think I could work with him on this specifically? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there are areas in there. I think the child tax credit will be one where there'll be a lot of conversation. The border security that Debbie mentioned earlier is one that will will get some traction as well. Uh, I think there's some some interesting things in there in terms of some of the family policy uh, that I think will will be good. And I also think there are some places the president. I don't think we'll mention this today, uh, but I think there is part of this where the president's going to say, let's look at some of those lower level entitlement programs, not Social Security, not Medicare, not Medicaid, not any of those things, but some of these lower level things that maybe aren't doing what they're supposed to or maybe not producing the right result that could actually be on the table for once, which I, I think would be really smart for the president to do. To say, look, we believe government needs to be strong and needs to play in these spaces. But if we're going to play there, we're going to we're going to do it right. And we're going to either make them effective or we're going to get rid of them. Uh, And that would be a big game change. And I think President Biden could actually pull that off both with Republicans and with Democrats. Boyd Matheson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You're back in studio today. We're out here in Grantsville. Great to talk with you about this. The president, once again, speaking live at 1230. Uh, That's our time. Again, we're checking on what Mr. Biden's standard time is today. Usually he's a little late for his own news conferences. Uh, But, of course, we'll be taking you there live when it does happen. Uh, Also, I listened uh, to Boyd's conversation that he had yesterday. 
during his show with Senator Mitt Romney. And if you missed that, it is definitely worth listening to. You can podcast uh, that conversation and all of our all of our shows on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, straight ahead, we're speaking live with the superintendent of the Tooele County School District. And Dave, you've been taking a look at this really big study from Envision Utah. We're going to take a deep dive into that more next week. But the top one of the top issues that stood out to you that we want to maybe ask the superintendent to to chime in on is is what? Yeah, it was a survey. Uh, what's the biggest problem with Utah education? Surprise, surprise, teacher pay. What can be done? It's a special edition of Dave and DeGenevic, live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. As these communities like Grantsville continue to grow, and they are growing quickly, as the mayor of Grantsville put it earlier when he called the show in the 9 o'clock hour, his main, one of his main concerns, actually his top concern was water, because they get most of their water from, a, they get their water from an aquifer. Yeah. Um, and he said they could be to 75,000 residents here quickly, uh, and they have 15,000 some odd now residents in Grantsville, 15,500 I think is what he put it at, so... As a result of that, then you have to think about what are the schools going to do? Are they going to be able to accommodate this growth? And thankfully, we've got Dr. Mark Ernst, who's the superintendent of the Tooele County School District, sitting to our right here, Dave, to ask some of these questions. I mean, you've got growth. You've got teacher retention issues. Uh, just all of the things that, that come along with, you know, more kids pouring into the district. Growth in Tooele County has been absolutely incredible. Uh, I've grown up here my entire life. Tooele it used to feel like the moon. <laughs> Quite honestly, I'm from Davis County. Like we, we never came out of here. Now, the population has just exploded. Uh, and, and, and I look at some of the struggles that, that kind of come along with that kind of growth. Uh, Dr. Ernst, give us an idea. What, what are some of the challenges that you're experiencing right now? Yeah, we do have uh, a lot of growth, as you've said. And uh, luckily, we have really good voters out here that approved a bond for us a couple years ago. We just opened a new elementary school here in Grantsville this year. We plan to, we're building Deseret Peak High School, which is in Tooele, be our second high school in the city of Tooele, and it'll open in 2025, August of 2025. And then hopefully the same year, uh, 25, we'll open another junior high school in the Stansbury Park area. Uh, that junior high just went out to bid. That's a, a $60 million project. Uh, so we're addressing growth in that way, and our voters have supported us that. Uh, I also just left uh, Sterling Elementary in Tooele a few minutes ago, and we talked about we're going to have to bring in some portables for that classroom or for that school because we were growing there. Uh, portables are not always easy to find either throughout the state, So, but we start looking now and to get them in place so they're ready to go in August. But uh, So portables is a, an issue, and then uh, we also do have some not necessarily shrinking schools, but schools that aren't growing, uh, maybe in, in, in our city center areas of Tooele especially. And so we're looking at we may have to readjust boundaries, uh, but really from one end of the valley to the other to balance out some of that growth and make sure that our schools, uh, we want to use our schools to capacity. Do, do, Dr. Ernst, do you have any projections on how much this this community could grow in terms of school age kids over the next 10 or 20 years you know i don't have the exact number uh we, we do have an employee that that's part of his job is to help us project we just hired one because we're uh we have such growth so we have a, a gis specialist is what he's called and, and he uh 
helps us with those projections brand new to the job because it's something uh, we really haven't had uh, a lot of experience in. So I don't know what that number is, but we know that people keep coming. They've, the secret of Tooele County is out. Yeah, it's been out for uh, the last decade, especially. My goodness, it's been incredible. Uh, There was a a survey done by Envision Utah, and it was talking about education and some of the concerns people have. The biggest problem with education is, and then the number one uh, response was teacher pay. I can't say I'm totally surprised. That usually tends to be uh, one of the biggest complaints. But uh, what are you doing to address uh, teacher shortages because we've seen this across the nation. We've seen massive che- uh, teacher uh, teachers leaving the business. Um, what are you doing about teacher pay here in Tooele? You know, we, we've done a really good job here in Tooele County of increasing our teacher pay over the last handful of years. And then and that's both with what our Board of Education has done in making that a priority, but also what the, the Utah State Legislature has done. We're f- very thankful for them for what they've done, not only this year in this uh, legislative session that just closed, but in previous years to help us with the, the weighted pupil unit uh, so we can use that money to increase salaries. Uh, so we are addressing that. Um, as a need, we also want to retain our 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 teachers here in Tooele County. So, uh, one thing we were fighting with is with the the districts in the Salt Lake Valley that were so close that a lot of our people, I believe it's about seventy percent of the Tooele County residents, commute into Salt Lake, and and teachers are part of that. And so we wanted our salaries here in Tooele County to be competitive with those in Salt Lake. And so we now are. And so we can not only uh, keep our teachers, but we can attract teachers out to Tooele County as well. Are they moving here or are they commuting every day? Uh, uh, a lot do move here. Uh, some do commute, but the majority of the majority of our teachers live in our community. Um, the second biggest problem with Utah, according to this study, um, this survey from Envision Utah, the biggest problem with Utah education, the second was curriculum and standards. And when the state report card came out recently, uh, it said that only about 40% of kids are at grade level uh, in English, about a third in science and math. Uh, I look at those standards and I think either we're doing a terrible job educating our kids, which I don't think is the case, or the standards are unrealistic. How do you balance this where our kids are ready, they're prepared, but at the same time, I'm having a hard time figuring out what that is telling me. Yeah, there really is a tipping point, right, between deciding is it uh, instruction happening in the classroom, is it students aren't understanding, is it the test itself that's causing some of the problem. Another issue we face is we have a large number of students who opt out of standardized testing. Um, And for us here in Tooele County, generally those that opt out are our higher achieving students. When a higher achieving student opts out of the test, it, it makes the results look lower than what they really are because those kids, for whatever reason, their parents choose to uh, not have them participate in those end-of-level tests. But what we do is we try to control what we can control. And so uh, we, we look at the data a lot. And then uh, we look at where kids are missing. So, for instance, if, if, if all the kids are missing question five, we need to ask, was the question worded wrong or is that something in our instruction that we need mm. to do better at? And so then if it's uh, just that, uh, you know, fractions, for instance, in math, well, then we, we know we need to give our teachers some better ideas of how to teach uh, fractions 
send them to some training, but also bring in small groups of students. So we know that tier one instruction, that instruction that the whole class gets, that's vital to uh, making sure that these numbers go up. And so as we improve our practice as educators, we believe that we will see an increase in the student outcomes. We're live at Grantsville High School this morning. We're speaking live right now to Superintendent of the Tula County School District, Dr. Mark Ernst. Uh, thank you so much for coming out here and, and being with us. And, and before we let you go, we've, we've, we've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks as we visited other schools about teen resource centers. Yeah. Is that coming to the Tooele Valley? Are those, are those centers coming to the Tooele Valley as well where kids can come in and get a meal or a snack or sit and do their homework and it's or maybe even their laundry yeah yeah they are um, we plan to open a teen center at Tooele High School uh, in August of this year and a teen center at Wendover High School August of this year with plans to bring one to here to Grantsville High and Stansbury High hopefully the following year possibly two years out uh, we would like a teen center in, in all of our high schools uh, uh, within the coming years, and that includes you Doug Dugway. Yeah, we do see a need. Uh, we have an, uh, a high school, an alternative high school that has a need. We have Dugway that uh, has a need. So even our, our smallest schools, there is a need. I forgot that you had Wendover. Yeah, as a matter and Dugway, of Dugway, proving ground. Yeah, that's yeah we're such a unique school district in that uh, Stansbury High, Twill High, 2,000 students. Wendover High has about, it's a 712 school about 200 students, and then we have two 30-student elementary schools, one in Vernon and one in Ivapaw. Uh, and so we really run the gamut of, of here in Tooele County of, of school size, which is good and Challenging. offers challenges. Offers challenges. Good way to say it. For sure. Dr. Mark Ernst, thank you for joining us, the Tooele County School District Superintendent. Thank you Thanks very for much. your time, and you thanks bet. for hosting us. This Absolutely. is great. Thanks yeah. for coming out. Thank you so much, Dr. Ernst. We're broadcasting live from Grantsville High, and we continue the conversation on things that are going on in the community. A very important conversation straight ahead on a suicide prevention walk that is coming up in April. The story behind it is incredible. Incredible. Uh, I want you to learn more about it, Dave. This is a hundred mile walk from Tooele. It's a special edition of Dave and DeGenevic, live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. We're broadcasting live from Grantsville High, and we are broadening out into the community. And we're so glad to be back out into the community. After a couple of years of not being out and about. So it's great to be in Tooele County. And while we were doing our research about cool things happening in Tooele County, uh, Caitlin, my producer, and I, Dave, yesterday, uh, right after you left the meeting, uh, we stumbled upon this amazing story uh, about Life's Worth Living Foundation and their commitment to walk from downtown Tooele to Wendover which is 100 miles to raise awareness regarding suicide. I think I just got a blister <laughs> as you described that. My goodness, a 100-mile walk over how long? Can, can I get like a month? <laughs> two days, is it, John? Two, two days. John Gossett is the founder of Life's Worth John, Living. John, you're a monster. Living Foundation. I'm an idiot. 
Oh, no. This is awesome. I'm so excited to learn so much about the walk. Our producer ran up, and she's like, I'm already I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm signing up, and you're sponsoring us. You're sponsoring me, Deb. I, so, you, so let's learn about the walk in just a moment. I want to learn about your found, the foundation, your foundation, Life's Worth Living. It sounds incredible, and I've watched KSL 5 television. They did an in-depth story on your foundation, and it has helped so many people who have gone through a loss due to a family member dying by suicide. Yeah, yeah. We started it in 2014, in February of 2014. And at the time, Tooele County was fourth in the state for highest suicides, and Today, we're 21st. So we've dropped from 4th to 21st, where most counties haven't made a move more than, you know, two spots or so. And so we've been very grateful. Not saying that's all from Life's Worth Living. I mean, it's been all of our community partners, the school district, everybody working together. And so I think it's been a blessing. Why a 100-mile walk? Can I be honest? Yeah. Okay. Well, we put a press release out like seven years ago, and none of the press showed up. And I went home, and I was really disappointed. I thought, man, that was such a cool thing we did, and nobody came from the press to cover it. It's not that I'm wanting the press for me, but, you know, you can't can't raise awareness if nobody knows what you're doing. And so I was really disappointed. At 3 in the morning, I woke up, and and my wife woke up, and she goes, why are you awake? And I said, I'm going to walk to Windover. And she goes, you're stupid. Go back to bed. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) She says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I said, listen, you have to do something stupid to get the media's attention. So (laughs) I had heard that Oprah Winfrey had run a marathon. And I thought, if I'm not saying I'm in shape, but if Oprah Winfrey ran a marathon, I can walk too. I apologize, Oprah, because I can't. I can't walk two a day. It's it's a lot. It's a long walk. But I'll tell you, it's life-changing. So tell us uh, how people get involved in this, John, and, and, and more about the walk itself. Okay, it's the seventh annual, so we've done it seven years. We had to cancel one year because of COVID. Um, we take tour buses, so I don't want to scare people. It's done in relay fashion. Our buses leapfrog each other, so you have the opportunity to walk about 50 miles um, because we're leapfrogging. But... It is one of the most healing things that we have ever done. What's amazing to me is you might think that you have this terrible story and that life has been really hard. And we put you on a bus with 56 people that all have similar stories. And some of them are even sadder and some of them are hard. And there might be people that are on this walk that struggle themselves. But we have found a way to let them know, you know what? You're okay. You're enough. You're all right. And we spend two days walking through the salt flats in the desert of uh, when you're in a car it's the ugliest drive in utah right when you are walking it it is absolutely beautiful day one we walk and i think this year is going to be this way we've had years where day one we're on the north side of i-80 and it looks like ireland and there's hatches of butterflies ten thousand butterflies flying in between the walkers day two it looks you're on the south side of i-80 and it looks like you're in Myrtle Beach with wind-blown picket fences along the side of the road. No ocean, but, you know, it's, it's really beautiful. So I think kind of tying into suicide and how difficult life is for everyone, everybody's got their stuff, you find beauty in unexpected places. 
uh, and then you come bus everybody back to Tooele City Hall Friday night for yep. fr- Friday night where everybody could sleep at home, and then they're back the next morning to be bussed out to Knowles. Yep, to where we left off. Okay, Knowles. Yep, Knowles is exit. Everybody I knows think. where Knowles is. Yeah. We all know where Knowles right. is. Oh, you've been through Knowles. You, you haven't been through Knowles? I've never right? heard of Knowles. I've been to Knowles. Well, there's two <laughs> There's two stops. There's Everybody knows Dell. And you go into the little gas you, station in Dell. That's you, the last services Del? till Windover. It's true. You can, I know Dell. Dell, you I can buy I stop off in Tooele, and then I stop <laughs> off in Windover. Dell and I go way back. Well, at Dell, you can get the bumper stickers that say, where the hell is Dell? You know, that, <laughs> that's what they're known for. And that. then you spend the night out in Windover the next night? We, we have hotels so for the walkers cool. at uh, the Nugget. And then we're doing a big after party this year. We were given by Windover Resorts. The Peppermill Concert Hall. So if you've ever been there, a little over a 1,000 seats. It's gorgeous. And we are bringing out Linda Linda Ronstadt's tribute band, and they're amazing. Oh, that's so fun. Uh, And when is the walk again, and how can people sign up? The 28th through the 30th of April, and you sign up on eventbrite.com. Now, if you don't want to do the walk but you still want to support, you can go to Windover Fun. As of 2 o'clock today, the tickets to the Ronstadt concert will be live on windoverfun.com. Get a ticket. Come out to the after party. Uh, if somebody does, doesn't necessarily, the, the walk is not their jam, but they, or they feel like they need support and they need help from your organization, what kind of support do you offer people who have uh, experienced like a loved one dying by suicide, John? Absolutely. So every month, the fourth Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. in the Mountain West Medical Center, which is our Tooele Hospital, we have a support group. And it's in the room next to the cafeteria. They'll, they'll guide you there from the front door. And we're there to support those that have lost loved ones as well as those that are struggling. John Gossett, thank you for joining us, uh, founder of Life's Worth Living Foundation. And best of luck. Yeah. Uh, hope all those blisters are, uh, you know, the great thing about the blister Let's you know you've done something. Right? We have a contest for the biggest blister. Stop it. So you get something you cool at the end. <laughs> it sounds a like lance. you're making a lot of fun <laughs> out of this. And how many butterflies? You said there's oh, thousands. I, that, that in and of itself, I never, I would never have known that. Nope. You don't yeah. see it from your car. You know, no, you you're don't. doing 100. <laughs> Thanks, 80, John. 80, John. John. John, thank you so much for, hey, thank for you being guys. here appreciate with us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. Oh, well, we appreciate what you're doing for the community, all of Tooele Valley and beyond. I know the impact is, is huge. John Gossett, the founder of Life's Worth Living Foundation. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll package all of this information up, and we'll stick it at kslnewsradio.com. We'll provide links so people want to get involved in the walk, John, and all the fun and those uh, concert tickets and all that other stuff. And we'll see you guys on the walk. I know you're coming. Oh, yeah. I I am actually doing. (laughs) I'll uh, be cheering from afar. I'm doing a walk to raise uh, suicide awareness um, in September, but it looks like I'll be doing two now this year. Well, they're both good ones. They're both awesome. Thanks so much, John. We're back with more live from Grantsville High School. It's a special edition of Dave and DeGenevic. Live from Grantsville High School in Tooele County. This is KSL in your community. We are broadcasting live in the lunchroom. The cafeteria here at Grantsville High is filling up with students, carrying trays across the room. It smells good in here. Uh, We're going to speak live to Corley Ward, who's the curriculum director over the dual language immersion program here in the Twilla County School District. And we just learned something we didn't know before we started talking to him, and that is that Twilla County uh, School District offers six 
different languages for students to learn most of any any district more than any district in the entire state the most the it's like most districts offer four they offer six what's incredible is the united states is way behind when it comes to learning a second language you go to foreign countries uh, i lived in spain for a couple of years they've been taking english since they were their first year and they take it every year and they they know so much we we don't do it as well we don't push the kids as much so spanish uh chinese mm-hmm. uh you said portuguese mm-hmm. uh german um i'm gonna miss french one. french russian did we get them all yep, yep got them all russian, russian is a is little that wild the only russian emergent dual immersion class in the state yeah it is and there's not a lot in the country even there's only a handful in the whole country there um we collaborate with one in anchorage alaska actually and a lot of these schools look to us because our dual language immersion program is um such a well-backed sustained program because of the state is putting this at the forefront of their education and um, just making a real highlight of what we do here in Utah. And so other other schools are looking at us of how to build their programs. Utah has such a rich history of languages because of the missionary program from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are so many foreign language speakers from all over the world. It's, it's quite unique. I think Utah is quite unique. Talk to us about the benefits of learning a language and, and how you kind of encourage kids to jump into it because it's hard. It's not easy to learn it right. a second language. Yeah, and going along those same lines with MTC language training, um, I like to make the joke that our Tula High School has the most languages in the state besides the MTC because uh, we have so many. <laughs> true. And it, it's pretty awesome, but um, this just opens up different avenues for the students to understand multiple languages and even have the opportunity when they get to high school to learn a third language in the regular world language classes. Um, The bridge program that is set up by the state uh, works with all the universities, the public universities in the state, and they get 3,000 level college credits by passing. So they pass the AP test, then they take the bridge program. 3,000 level credits. You think about a regular concurrent enrollment class, that's first year 1000 level usually these are junior year in college level credits so it's it's a big time deal saving thousands of dollars for these students along the way and even if they don't go in and get a major in spanish or portuguese or russian whatever in in college it opens up avenues for their other career opportunities as well where where do you find teachers for example for the for the russian dual immersion program yeah russian there's actually uh several different pockets around the country but one in draper too there there's a lot of russian speaking people that are citizens and then with the other languages we we looked all over and the state does an incredible job of helping us find those teachers they are always high highly qualified which is amazing and if you've if you think about it, um, trying to get the, this many teachers to be highly qualified is such a big deal because it's so many positions to fill, and we're lucky to, to get these great teachers. What's tougher, Russian or Chinese? 
Um, I put them on the same <laughs> level. Yeah. What's, what's the most popular dual immersion course? Uh, uh, right courses? now, the one that has the highest enrollment is our Spanish. Yeah, Spanish is, Makes is a lot big of sense. time. Yeah. Yep. Corley, well, we appreciate you joining Corley us. Corley Ward, Curriculum Director, uh, supervising the Dual Language Immersion Program in the Tooele County School District. Uh, looks like uh, they're saving a tray for you over All there. Right, I don't know. You. Whatever's for lunch, it sure smells good. Go enjoy. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for, for stopping by. Uh, Brett Valdez, Tooele County School District, Communications Director. Um, this has been a wonderful, wonderful journey for us today. It's so nice to be back in the community and spending time in Grantsville. Um, what are some of the, the neat things that are on the agenda for the Tooele County School District uh, looking ahead? Well, first of all, we appreciate you guys being able to come out here to, to let us kind of highlight and showcase some of the things we do. And because there's there's a broad array of things that we're able to to do here in the area. I mean, the dual language immersion is something that's really cool and unique to what we're able to offer here. You even have a couple of kids in it. <laughs> I do. I have four kids in two different two different languages. So they can't can't tag team up on us too much. Oh, but, dueling over dual but we immersion. Do. We do. We have. Yeah. We have. Oh, they're four making kids. fun of you in three different languages for sure. <laughs> well, at least they go <laughs> two, two at a time now, right? So, but yeah, I do, and and it's been really great to be able to see that. And, you know, kind of take advantage of those opportunities in my family. But we just see all the great things that, that we're doing out here. And, you know, we have a lot of we have a unique um, district, the way it's made up in kind of some big schools and small schools, far remote. But but they, they, they do. They work together. And we've, we've talked to some of the students here today. They, they try to collaborate and do some fun things amongst the different student bodies and stuff on the high school level, even down to the, to the younger elementary schools and stuff. So there's a lot of great things. And we're so grateful you guys come out here and let us showcase does that. The, does the distance, when we're talking to the superintendent, he pointed out the distance between the different, like you've got Wendover, you've got Dugway Proving Ground, right. you've got Twilla City, you've got Grantsville. Does that create challenges in terms of like transportation and, and busing and extracurricular activities? The, the, there's some unique things with it, right? So, I mean, I guess it could be challenges, but it's just unique. And so we're able to have things out in Wendover to help support them. We've got a couple really small remotes, even out on Ibapa. Um, and so, so the kids are involved yep. out there in the different yep. activities. So, so they'll be able to get involved and do those things. We're able to offer those. And they have some of the resources of a larger school district. As you know, we have over 20,000 students um, in our district. But, but, yeah, there's a little bit of diversity there for sure. When I look at uh, the students that are here for, for lunch, and holy cow, this is like the quietest cafeteria <laughs> in the history of cafeterias. They're, like, so well-behaved. Uh, what is the one of the biggest challenges right now? that you have with kids, uh, you know, that are, that are trying to juggle so much, you know, the pressures of life, you know, friends. I mean, it's not a unique story, but I, maybe here in the Tooele School District, what are you seeing? It, it is, it's a little different on what they're going through now. It's different, right? Every, yeah. I guess every generation has different challenges for sure, but there's a lot of opportunities, but I think there's a lot more outside influences and distractions, if you will, as well. And so I think it's important to, to make sure that we provide not just the educational experience, 
but some of those extracurricular and the social experience and help them to grow as a well-rounded individual and not just focus on one area. But I think that's a, a challenge, but also one for opportunity. Yeah. Brett Valdez, thank you for hosting us. And uh, this has been wonderful from the Tooele School District, the communication yeah. director. Thanks, Brett. Three minutes to Wendover. About it, though. Idol, Grantsville High. That's next. Fix stop uh, to a man being shot and killed. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.